All right, if you open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in our lesson plan. So we're going to be going through these two chapters, and really it's an introduction to a particular person. We've, he's been mentioned before, but I think what we try to do with the Lord's help is, is look into our narrative here. And try to go through it. But also, I believe that this story, and you might think, well, it's obscure. It's in 2 Kings. It actually pictures what the Lord's going to do, what Jesus Christ is going to do on a broader scale. It's really a picture of what he's going to do. And so it's great that we can find things like this. And the Spirit gives us the understanding and opens our eyes. But remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed it. And so it makes sense that all of it would connect somehow. And you think, well, it's just a history lesson. It's a story. Well, not necessarily. And God recorded these things for various reasons, but one of them is for our learning as, as, uh, as the year 2016 saints now looking into his word. But also, it pictures something that's yet to come. And it should, gives us, it should give us hope in that sense when we think about it. All right, so let's just look in chapter 9. We're going to try to read... As we go along, just make comments, and um, I don't know if I'll be able to read entirely every verse because we're, we're already short on time, but we'll just go by section by section. Okay, so Second Kings chapter 9 and verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called a certain one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and, ri- and have him rise among f- his fellows and lead him to the inner chamber. And there take a flask of oil and pour it on his head. And thus says the Lord, I will anoint you king over Israel and open the door and do not linger. So the young man and the servant, the prophet went to Ramoth Gilead and he said, behold, and he came and behold, the commanders of the armies were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us, uh, to which of all of us? He said, to you, O commander. And he rose and went into the house and the young man poured oil, uh, oil on his head and said, the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, and you shall avenge on Jezebel, uh, that I might avenge on Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab and the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, like the son of Nebat, and also like the house of uh, Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel. And there should be none to bury her. And then he opened the door and fled. And we'll stop right now to make some comments. So where we're at, we're introduced to this character named Jehu, or some might pronounce it Jehu. I'm not sure which one it is. I've heard it both ways. But this character named Jehu is introduced to us. And he's told by Elisha, well, actually, he gets his instruction from the Lord that he's going to be king. Now, this is going to this is interesting because especially in this day and age, um, at least in two areas of this world, 
there's an active rebellion and overthrowing. They want to overthrow the government. But here we have a God-sanctioned overthrow, overthrow of government. God says, listen, this guy's going to be the man. You're going to overthrow this active government and you're going to replace him. Not just that. You're going to kill everybody that's part of his family. Now, why, why would the Lord ever sanction this? Causes us to question another thing, too, you might be thinking. But we have to go back to 1 Kings 19. Because actually, this was not given to Elisha first. It actually was given to Elijah. And if you recall the story, if not, I will tell you. Um, Elijah, in his challenging Israel, remember, Israel at this time, for the most part, is, a, is apostate. They have, they have gone astray. They followed Bial, the Bials. They followed this. They set up golden calves to worship ever since their split from Judah, ever since their split from the house of David. And so Israel as a whole is very idolatrous. But the Lord kept sending prophets trying to wake them up. And the Lord's very long suffering with his people. He's very long suffering today. He's not willing to uh, punish immediately. Sometimes it does happen like that. But thank the Lord that he's long suffering. And for years and years and years, he was dealing with these people and dealing with these people. And he sent them prophets. And one of the major prophets that we read about is Elijah. He comes on the scene and immediately he's challenging these people's belief systems. He says, you guys... You guys want to follow Baal? Fine. Let's go meet up on the mountain. Let's have a showdown. And see whose God is God. You guys say Baal. I'm going to say the Lord is God. Jehovah. And so they have a contest. Fire comes down and the Lord proves himself to the people. And it's interesting, uh, it's interesting that the fire did not come down on those people. It came down on the sacrifice. If you've noticed that. Those people deserve to get, to get burned up. But um, Elijah then went and killed all those prophets of Baal. They were all there. Killed them all. But after that, you say, what a great victory. Great victory for Elijah. He takes off running the very next chapter. Because Jezebel, same character that we just read about, she wants to kill him because she killed, his, she killed her prophets. And so she's after this man of God. And Elijah, in that stage of life, says, you know what? I'm out of here. He says, this woman's going to be the end of me. I'm out of here. I'm running. And he, we find him in a cave. And the Lord speaks to him to, through various ways, the earthquake, wind, wind or fire. But look, at, in, in chapter 19, this is in 1 Kings 19, verse 14. Uh, the Lord says, so remember, the, the still small voice or low whisper, mine says. And Elijah heard it. He hears the Lord speaking to him. And the Lord says this. He says this multiple times. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same answer. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and throw down your, your altars and have killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's like, listen, God, I'm the only one standing up for you. I'm the only one crying out for you. I'm the only one follow after truth. And look what's happened to me. Everybody's against me. And you know what? Maybe not so much in this country. But in some cases, that is true. If you're going to stand up for the, for the truth, you might be an island. And it shouldn't surprise you that if you're going to speak up for the name of Jesus or something that's godly, that you're going to be on your own. And there's nobody visibly going to be on your side. And they're going to mock you or they're going to laugh at you. Or some cases, you know, maybe not here, but you might lose your life. Maybe lose your job, something. And 
Elisha, it, it, he took it to heart. He says, man, I'm out of here. And the, listen, listen to the, word, the words of the Lord. Lord wasn't done with this. Is, this is so great. Lord is great, obviously. But he's not done with Elijah. You know, Elijah was in this low point in his life. God was not done. He says, listen, go back to where you came. He says, listen, look, look, look what the Lord tells him. Return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go back the way you came, where you ran from. I'm still not done with you. Actually, he tells him to go to Damascus, which is Syria. He says, when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel over king of Syria. Number one. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, over the king of Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abath Mahala. And you shall anoint him prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put, or Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. And I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all who, whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouth has not kissed them. And so essentially what I, Elijah was complaining about is, listen, Lord, why aren't you doing something here? Everybody, your own people are falling apart and they're falling after Baal. And it seemed like the Lord wasn't doing anything. Well, it says, you know what? The Lord was doing something. And now he's about to do something. He says, go anoint a Gentile king, which his name is Haziel in Syria. And this actually did happen. He takes over for, for Ben-Hadad. And uh, Jehu is going to take over for, for which Ahab was the king at that point, but one of Ahab's sons. And Elisha is going to take your spot. You know what? These three people I'm going to use to bring the people back to me. Or I'm going to execute my judgment. Does God care what's going on in this world today? He does. But sometimes we look out there in the world, and even as a believer, you say, man, how can this be allowed to happen? And the unbelieving world will say that sometimes to you. And it's a hard question to answer. What exactly is God doing? Well, we, can, <clears throat> we have enough information to know that God does care. And in the end, we will talk about it, that he's going to wipe this dish clean of evil. Evil cannot exist. He will wipe it clean and he'll do something about it. But right now in this day and age, there's long suffering, there's grace, and he's offering the gospel to every person, including myself, including you. And so now's the time for repentance. Now's the time to cry out to the Lord in salvation. But he reminds Elijah at this point and the low point in his life is, listen, Lord, I'm the one. I'm the only one working for you. I'm the only one standing for you. And there's nobody else. The Lord says, no. I'm, I care what's going on there. I'm going to be with you. I am with you. But there's something coming, and I'm going to deal with this evil. It's not going to, it's not going to continue to exist. Sometimes you think of evil. Well, you know, these evil men or, or women, you see them. seems like they exist. Well, the Lord is going to deal with them, and he does. But he says this, interesting, in our story, that Jehu was now. It, we don't have any record of Elijah actually anointing him. But undoubtedly, Elisha heard this information from Elijah. So back to our story. So Jehu is on a mission even before Ahab is now dead and off the scene. But this is now Ahab's son who's reigning in Israel. And Haziel, which we just read, is already Elisha anointed him over uh, over the Syrian army or the Syrian nation in Damascus. And so in verse 11, back to our our section here in Second Kings 9, it says, Jehu came out with the servants of the master. And he says, all is well, is all well. He says, what is this mad fellow came to you? 
And they said to him, you know, the fellow in his talk, you know, he says, you know, this guy came in haste. He'd even bother saying hello to anybody. He just came right inside and says, I have a word for you. And he spoke right to Jehu. So they said, man, what's going on? He took you out back. What, what does he want to tell you? And Jehu tries to cover it up a little bit. He says, oh, it's not true. Tell us now. And he says, oh, he, and he said, this is Jehu saying to them, says, thus he spoke to me that the Lord has anointed you king over Israel and make haste. And, they, and then in haste, every male, every man took off his garment and put them uh, on the bare steps. And he blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. And so essentially what, what they said is like, you know what? This is rebellion, is it not? That there was a current government. Now Jehu is going to take over. And the men of the commanders um, threw their lot in with, uh, in with Jehu. Now, we're going to get a little picture. Why was he in Ramoth Gilead? Why were the commanders of the army? Let's, let's keep reading through our story here. And in verse 14, it says, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, conspired against Jehoram. And Jehoram being the son of Ahab, this is. Now, with all the Israel had been on guard in Ramoth Gilead for Haziel, king of Assyria. But Jehoram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of his wounds and the Syrians had get, that the Syrians had given him. And he fought with Haziel, the king of Syria. And Jehu said, if it is your decision, let no one slip out of the city and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel for Jehoram laid there. And Ahaziah... The king of Judah had also come down to Jehoram. So there's a battle going on. Not only was Jehu just conspiring, but he was a commander in the army. And uh, what kind of army can stand against another army who's fighting a battle that now is split? But in any case, there were a group of people that when they heard this news, uh, whether the Lord's you know, touched their heart or what, they threw their lot in with Jehu. They said, you know what, we're going to go with you. But he's in Ramoth Gilead. There's where's the battle happening up in that city. The news of Elisha, well, it came from uh, one of the prophets that he sent, sons of the prophets. He gives them the news. He anoints them as king. Then he leaves the city. He tells them, he says here, well, if you're going to be on my side, don't let anybody come out and slip out what's going to happen. Look, I don't want this news to break too early what's going on because there's something going on and I'm planning it. So, they leave the, he leaves the battle scene and he goes to Jezreel. Remember, the king Jehoram is in Jezreel because he got some kind of wound in the battle. So he goes to Jezreel to carry out this, uh, this conspiracy. In verse 17, it says this, And the watchman was standing there over that tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And I see, I see a company. And... Um, Jehoram said, take a horseman and meet him and say, is it peace? So the man on the horseback went to meet him and thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do I have to do with peace? Turn around and get behind me and ride behind me. And the watchman said, reported, says the messenger reached and, but he is not coming back. And the second horseman, then he sent out a second horseman and said, and said to him, and the king said, is it peace? And Jehu, uh, Jehu answered and says, what do I have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, he reached him, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshai, for he drives seriously. So the watchman's out there. And they didn't have any early detections, radar. But this was their early detection system. 
is that they would have somebody now, whatever, how far you can see, I guess it's five, ten miles, something. You know, that was their early detection. If they didn't have any scouts that would see. So he sees somebody coming. Oh, who's that? You know, well, I could see the way he's driving. We're going to say a little bit more about this um, in application. But that kind of driving, I recognize that before. Uh, that's Jehu. He's driving. He's coming very furiously. But he wants to find out what's going on. Because remember, the king now is in Jezreel. His army is up in fighting a battle. And this, at any time, you would think, this is the most vulnerable time. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm, you know, I'm not even in the front lines. And this is the time that somebody's going to come after me. And he sends out some horsemen to him. Now, one thing I, wanna, I, want, I do want to look at, he, said, he answers, uh, actually, we, we will get to it. But he says, what do I have to do with peace? So it's, it's very apparent that he's come not to make peace, that this needs to be dealt with. The current system needs to be dealt with, the current government. And so the watchman tells him, well, it looks like, it kind of looks like Jehu, the son of Nimshai, for he drives very furiously. The way he's whipping those horses, whatever it was, so he's turning around in the chariot. He recognized that, that kind of riding. I've seen that before. So Jehoram, the king, made ready, and he readied uh, ready his chariot. And Jehoram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, set out. And they went and reached the chariot, uh, they t- each in his own chariot, and to meet Jehu. And they met him at the property of uh, Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, this is interesting. You, know, you read these little details. <laughs> And you can kind of just skip over him. When you start hearing that name Naboth, doesn't that ring a bell? Remember, his father wanted this man's vineyard. He wanted that plot of land. And how did he get it? Well, well, Jezebel had a hand too. Well, he signed basically a false ex- actu- uh, excuse me, accusation. Says, well, Naboth, well, he, well, actually he tried to buy it from Naboth. Naboth said, no, it's been in my family for t- far too long. I don't want to sell it. It means more to me than just money. So then Ahab gets upset. Well, his wife, being um, as entrepreneurial as she is in the evil way, she signs some kind of false accusation. So they they accuse Naboth of something. They end up stoning him, and he's dead. And and Ahab in the room, he's in there crying because he can't get the vineyard. Jezebel comes in and says, listen, Naboth is dead. And he jumps up in joy. He's like, whoo, I get myself a new vineyard. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pay any money. But you know what? The Lord noticed that. Because on his way down there, Elijah met him. And the thing that he did in secret, the Lord told Elijah. And the Lord paid attention. And he told him, he says, listen, you're going to die. And the blood is going to be right here where you're going to die. And it's going to be licked up by the dogs. Not only that, now his son's in the same location. You think they planned that meeting? No, it was of the Lord, right? So they meet in this, in, in this vineyard, right, where Naboth is. And this is a very um, profound question. Jehoram said to Jehu, says, is there peace, Jehu? We've heard this before. And listen to his answer. This is Jehu saying, what peace can there be as long as whorings and the sorceries of your mother, Jezebel, are so many? What peace can there be in this world while evil exists? Can there be any peace? There can't. You know, there's an organization who, who tries its best um, in, the, in the resources they're given. Of course, they're ran by man. It's the U.N. And, you know, they're not they're like an intermediary 
intermediary between nations. They don't really have a standing army. They have countries that commit. So what they try to do is negotiate peace between two parties and they try their best. But what's the problem? Well, for one, it's ran by man and there's evil in the heart, but there's evil in this world and it can't exist and have peace at the same time. There could be a sense of it, but it doesn't last. You've seen it before, right? You've seen them broker a peace deal. You see the United States involved between two countries. And it's not before long before they're fighting each other. And Jehu says this. He says, look, Jehoram says, is it peace? And he says, can there be peace while there's such grievous evil happening here? There can't be. And that's, we should take that to heart, that the Lord does care what's going on here. He sees that there's evil in this world, and we want things to be right, but there's going to be, it has to be on God's timetable, and that God is going to intervene, that evil cannot exist with peace, that is. So we want peace, we want things to be established, and we want the Lord to reign, but he will deal with it. And how is he going to deal with it? Well, Jehu gives us a picture. It needs to be wiped clean. Can't be now. He's tried. God has tried with this world, right? Or is trying to bring them right to speak to their hearts. They're changed them from the inside. But the Lord says it says this that He's going to come back and full retribution for those who continue to sin. Well, you could say that. No, it says this: who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, who said, you know, that's for somebody else, or Nah, that seems too simple. They don't obey it. God's coming back to, to pay them in full retribution. Profound statement says this, that what peace can there be so long as the whoring, whorings and the sorceries of your mother, mother Jezebel are so many? We mentioned a little bit, but Jezebel was, I didn't actually mention this, but Jezebel was from a different country, a neighboring country, Ahab. Uh, the children of Israel were instructed not to go out and marry uh, foreign women, but he went and married a foreign woman. She introduced a lot of, uh, of foreign worship of other gods. And that's exactly what Jehu was, was mentioning, is that how can there be peace while this is going on? And so Jehoram says, reigned about, and he fled, saying, Ahaziah, O treachery, uh, treachery, O Ahaziah. Jehoram says, well, I see where this is going. Didn't take him long. He says, <laughs> this guy came for business. You know, he means business. He's not here to... to uh, to, to shoot the breeze. So he, he takes his chariot and his reins about. I'm just picturing in my mind how quickly he can get out of there. So he tries to get away. And it says here that Jehu drew his bow at full strength and shot Jehoram between the shoulders. So the arrow pierced, pierced his heart and he sank into the chariot. Jehu said to Bichthar, he says his, uh, his aide, take him up, throw him in the plot of the ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I both rode side behind his father, Ahab, uh, Ahab, his father, how the Lord had made this proclamation against him. So these two men, Jehu and Bithar, must have been old enough to remember Ahab, his father. They must have been around for a little bit. And they were there when Elijah, interesting, made this pronouncement against, um, against Ahab about that he would be, uh, the dogs will lick up his blood here. It says, As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth, the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will play you on this plot of ground and therefore take him up and throw him in the plot of ground in accordance with the, the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord. And Ahaziah, now this man we haven't really talked too much about, but 
There was a marriage connection between, sometimes, between these two nations. Remember, they were connected by blood, Israel and Judah. They were from the same father. But some cases, they tried to make alliances with each other through marriage. We see that, maybe not so much today because there's not too many monarchies, but we see it in uh, the times where monarchies were more popular in the European nations, is that they were intermarried between other royal families. Sometimes maybe it wasn't just for that because they thought, well, I couldn't marry a commoner. I need to keep it within royal blood. But what they would do would try to say, well, if I marry somebody within the family, they can't come fight against me, right? We don't want to have family struggle. So Ahaziah was actually a product from, I think maybe it was his wife or his father. I don't remember. But one of them, there was a connection to Ahab. And so he actually had, there was a connection to him, to Ahab here. And so Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, and he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen. And Jehu pursued him and shot him uh, and said, shoot him also, for they shot him in the chariot on the ascent of Gur, which is in Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him to the uh, in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with the tomb of his fathers in the city of David. And the 11th year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to rule reign over Judah. So not only does he get rid of the king that was in his own country, but the king in Judah now is dead. There was a connection to Ahab. Now it says here uh, in verse 30, let's continue reading what happens to Jezebel. Jehu said to Jezebel, uh, came to Jezreel and Jezebel heard of it. She painted her face and her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. Now this is odd. Sometimes I read some of this. And I don't know what she was planning on doing, whether she was planning to maybe uh, look too good to say, ah, what a waste, you know, to kill this woman. You know, look how good she looks. I don't know what she was planning on doing. But in any case, it says here that she put on her makeup, put on her crown and looked out the window. So there we have it. So there's this woman looking out the window. And here comes Jehu. He says he enters in the gate. He says, is it? And she says to him, same phrase, is it peace? Zimri, the murderer of your master. Now, this is interesting. She draws upon Israeli history because Zimri, who actually was. He rode with Ahab's grandfather, Ahab's father, which is Amri, and he conspired against the king. And this happens a lot in the Israeli king history, a lot of warlord type behavior. But he conspired, killed the king. Then Amri conspired against him and killed him. So it was this concession of like assassinations, but she pulls on history and says, you murder of your master. And he lifted up his face and looked at the window. So he said, well, well, there you are. Saved me the trouble of looking for you. And he says, and he lifted up his face uh, to the window where this voice came. Says, who's, and he said, who's on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked down and he said, throw her down. And so they threw her down and some of the blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. It's a pretty violent end to a violent lady, right? Um, we'll, we will make a qu- uh, uh, answer a little question, I think, that would come from this. But in any case, they threw her down from, doesn't say from how long, but it must have been long enough to, to, that she would instantly die. And, and then he went in and ate and drank. So he said, job well done. Time to kick up my feet and eat and drink. Well, that was enough killing for today. And he said, now see to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is the king's daughter. He says, wait, hold on. You know what? we got to go check on her and bury her. I don't want to leave her in the street. Body's going to start rotting. And But when they came to bury her, they found no more than a skull on her feet and the palms of her hand. And they said to her, and, and they came and told Jehu, he says, listen, 
There's nothing to bury. Nothing left. And he says, no, this is the word of the Lord in which he spake by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, that in the, Je- in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be dung on the face of the field and ter- territory in Jezreel, and that nobody can say that this is Jezebel. Does God carry through with what his promises are? As terrible as, that, as it was, did God have enough I mean, was there enough that God would react in such a way? Of course. We don't know fully everything that she was doing, but she was killing God's own prophets. And so God said, listen, there's going to be nothing left to bury when she's dead. It's just going to be skull, some hands, and immediately, it was almost immediately, something came, the dogs came and ate her up. In any case, so before we actually get to the next part, I would like to just touch on it because it is such a great, profound story. Is You know, my wife asked me this question. You, you, you read through the story. Man, this is extremely bloody. And this is extremely violent. And it's God-sanctioned. God told them, listen, you need to write them out. Now, we, you look at the world today and you start seeing other groups who, now, of course, they're not directed by God, but they claim to do the same things, right? There's a belief system. They're not in line with it. And they, they do something about it. And it's usually a loss of life. Why is it that this was okay and not that and not what we see? Well, for one, it is God sanctioned, right? God was the one that instructed this. And on top of it does. Now, they're not working for the the people in the world that I'm referring to. They're not working for God. They're not doing God's will. But is God quick to do that? Does first of all, does God take pleasure in the death of an unrighteous person? He does not. It says that he does take any pleasure in that because he knows what happens next. It's eternal punishment. But does God take evil seriously? You better believe it. Yeah, he does. It's not something that, you know, we kind of have, we see, maybe I'll speak for myself. You know, you see something in the house that's a little messy and you kind of like, well, it's it's just there. I'm going to try to ignore it or, you know, whatever. There's a problem over there. I'm just going to try to ignore it, sweep it under the rug. It can't be like that with God, right? His character demands, his holiness demands that evil must be dealt with. And, And this is the way that it happened. But... Well, well, let's just let's just talk about one more thing about Jehu, and then we'll we'll look into a little bit of an application here. So there's one more thing that he does. He ends up. I'll just I'll, I'll mention it, and this is in chapter ten, part of our narrative too. But he ends up killing. Uh, well, actually, he does not personally, but he he says uh, what happens is in generally in monarchies, the son then or the next in line takes over. Naturally, what happens, but he goes. Ahab had lots of sons, 70 sons. I can't even imagine. I have one. I think it's too much. But he had 70 sons, and he had people taking care of them. So obviously he couldn't do it himself, but he had, he had uh, I don't know what you would call them, nannies, but he had caretakers that were going to raise them to make them kingly. He goes to where they're at. He says, you know what? Um, you, know, you know what happened. It's not a secret. Let's put, you know, put your best man out. Let's just, let's just get this over with. Put him on the throne, and let's duke it out. And they said, you know what? <laughs> the caretaker says, ah, this guy just killed two kings. I, I don't think there's, this is not a great decision. You know, I don't even want to be against this guy. This guy is on a mission. He's on a mission to do something. And so they ended up, um, they ended up killing these 70 sons. And again, uh, it's a very um, gruesome scene, but they ended up cutting, severing their heads and handing them over. So Jehu then um, it says this, that he, he oh, and then, and then he met some more relatives of, uh, that were connected to Ahab, he wiped them out too. So he ends up doing part one. 
And this next this next part is actually part two. It doesn't necessarily say this, but was it in line with what God wanted? Absolutely. There's one more thing that he's doing in verse 18 of chapter 10. It says, Jehu assembled all the people and he said to them, Ahab served Baal little. Jehu will serve him much. He says, you know what? Look, the previous uh, regime, they were after Baal and it was the national religion. Well, you know, I'm going to go full head. I'm going to go full steam. You know, he did a little bit. Well, I'm going to do it a lot. Now, he did this in deceit because what he's going to do, he's going to grab everybody that is in line with this. But he says this. He makes an assembly. He says, you know, they were what they were doing in the previous. It's not going away. We're going to continue doing it. And actually, we're going to do it so much that I'm going to make it an own national holiday. He says, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal and the worshipers and his priests. Let none be missing. For I have a great sacrifice to offer Baal, and whoever's missing shall not live. And Jehu did it when cunning in order to destroy all the worshipers of Baal. He says, listen, this feast is going to be so great, if you don't show up, you're going to die. So that's somewhat of a little bit of a motivation to be here. But they said, you know, when this regime changed, sometimes the, the center of worship and the objects of worship changed too, because the person might bring in their own gods. But this guy says, no. We're going to keep following Baal. Now, he, now the, the word of the Lord tells us that uh, the Bible tells us that he did this in cunning. So uh, cunning or he did this in deceit to gather everybody together. And Jehu ordered to uh, sanctify the solemn assembly for Baal and they proclaimed it. And he sent throughout all Israel. All the worshipers came of Baal and there was not a man who did not come. And they entered into the house of Baal and the house of Baal was full from the end to the other. And he said to the one who's in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments and all the worshipers for all the worshipers of Baal. So they brought out all the vestments for them. He says, listen, not only we're going to have a feast, we're going to do whatever the Baal worship is. We're also going to dress the part, make sure that we identify everybody that is part of this system. You know, bring out the clothes, whatever it was, you know. Yellow tie, blue shirt, I don't know what it was. But in any case, you identified the vestments were that, uh, or that type style of worship. Make sure they're all dressed up for it. And then he, uh, and then he, um, he commands in 23, he says, Jehu said to the house, uh, went into the house of Baal and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and make sure that there's no servant of Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of, the Baal, of Baal. And he went in and they uh, they went in to offer and sacrifice and burnt offerings. So they continue. They start doing their ritual. Now, Jehu stationed 80 men outside. And he says, the man who escapes, who allows anyone to uh, to escape, I will give the, into the hands and he will be forfeit. So he gives them a command. Listen, you're going to stand out here. If anybody gets past you, it's going to be your life instead. So you better, you know, you have enough uh, motivation to make sure that nobody gets out. And as soon as he made an end of the offering and the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and the officers, go in and strike down every man and don't let him escape. And so they went in and put uh, every man put on the sword and the guard and the officers cast them out. And they went to the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought down the pillar and the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and they made it a latrine until this day. And and then it says here and uh, I'm missing it, but he it says here in, in Maya says that he eradicated the worship of Baal. So not only did he did he did he get rid of Ahab, which was the Lord's desire, 
But he also got rid of that worship system that drew them away from the Lord. Now, that's where the likeness of what the Lord's doing, uh, what the Lord will do, stops. Because later, Jehu still, it's almost like this thorn of flesh. You see these two calves, and it just seems they cannot break away from it. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the attraction of it, whether it's because it's convenient. But that worship system, they could not break themselves away from. And he ends up still following after that. But... Because Jehu uh, executed the Lord and what he uh, executed what the Lord wanted, and he acted in this way of, of cutting off all this Baal worship and getting rid of that, that uh, he's going to have his sons up to the fourth generation reign. Now, this was very unique because in this system, remember, there was very warlord type, that the strongest, the strong will survive. So they kept killing each other, assassinations left and right. And the strong person would take over and that would last maybe for his son. And then another person would come. But. Uh, this man were going to be reigning and up to his four sons. And really, um, it's not long after his four sons that Israel then goes into exile. So he really is the one that ushers in the end of the nation of Israel. But we did mention that that this is going to be a picture of what the Lord's going to do in the coming day. It says this in Revelation 16. What's going to become of, his, of, of evil and the nations and all those who would go against the Lord? He says, talking about the seventh bowl, sixth bowl, excuse me, says this in verse 12. It says, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water was dried up. Prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw the mouth out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth, mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were demonic spirits and performing signs and going abroad to the kings of the whole world and assembling them for battle. Assemble them for battle for the great day of the God Almighty. And behold, I'm coming like a thief. And, be, and blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go out naked and be exposed. And they assembled them in one place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon. And so God is going to do something else. Now, won't mention it, but... Actually, yeah, it's good to read the word of God in Zechariah. Connection with this, it says 14, it says, uh, Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, the day the Lord is coming, and the spoil will be divided from your midst. This is talking about Israel. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and, there, uh, and the city shall be taken, and houses plundered, and the woman raped, and half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people shall, be, uh, shall not be cut off of the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem to the east. And the Mount of Olives shall split from east and west and, from the, uh, and make a very wide valley. And half the mountain will move northward and the other one southward and so on. And so it, there's going to come a time that God's going to gather all nations, everybody who hated him. And he's going to dangle Israel as bait. Here they are. Come and get them. He's going to let you take some of the city, it says here. You're going to have some success against them. But then he's going to come. It says in other places, he comes through the clouds riding a white horse. Right? He's going to descend. It's not even going to be a battle. But he's going to obliterate evil once and for all. Now, not once and for all, but at that time before his kingdom. Gone. The leader of that time, the prophet, uh, the, the beast, and his the person who was... Uh, uh, the beast's 
so to speak, cheerleader, the prophet, they're going to be taken, gone, that government taken care of. Everybody else who was on board with that, wiped clean. Does that sound familiar to our story? It's exactly what he did. He gathered them all together. All the prophets of Baal. Now, he uses deception. The Lord's not going to do that way, but he is going to gather them. He's going to use Israel as bait. The world does not like God's plan, does not like God, does not like God, but those who identify with him. And in that time, God's going to then bring back Israel into the forefront and be working with them. Not only is he going to be working through their hearts to bring them back to himself, in the same sense, he's going to deal with evil once and for all and then usher into his kingdom. We had mentioned also that um, can there be peace? Well, we'll stop with this. Can there be peace? while the whorings and the atrocities of idolatry be continued. Now that, you know, we, we mentioned that they, there can't be peace while there's still evil in this world. You know, the word of God, uh, Ephesians 5 says this, is that, that those who pursue sexual immorality, idolatry, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. God cannot allow that in his kingdom. We mentioned at the end, before he ushers his kingdom, that there's going to be a great battle. He's going to gather all evil, and he's going to bring them to this valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon. Actually, it was mentioned in our story, too. That's where Ahaziah died. But there he's going to gather them. It's going to be a great valley. He's going to bring them in all there, and he's going to wipe them clean. He can't allow evil in his kingdom. It needs to be dealt with. He can't have evil in his presence. And so the story which I take from this, is that evil, can, uh, evil cannot exist. There can't be evil while there's... Oh, if we want peace, evil cannot exist, right? But what do we do today, right? If that's what the Lord is going to do, how do we handle that? Well, personally on a level, right, there is things that happen to us. And we, man, we want justice to... Maybe for myself, man, we want justice to happen right now for this. Lord, please make this right. Well, sometimes there's something the Lord's doing, right? He's not immediately to execute, execute judge, uh, justice at this point. And sometimes it's something that he's teaching you or me. But we need to, as, 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 as the apostle says, is to suffer with him, right? The Lord Jesus was here. Were people on his side? A majority, maybe like 12 or 13 people maybe. But as a majority, they weren't. They didn't like him. And so if you claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you preach and you're going to open your mouth and you're going to suffer some kind of... Uh, of retribution and suffering because of this world's animosity against its creator. And so the Lord is going to deal with evil. But secondly, is that should ultimately pursue or, uh, uh, push us, right, to want to get the gospel out, especially to the family members and those close to us that the Lord has placed, right? Because evil is not something he's just going to sweep aside and says, oh, you know, you know, same way we deal. Well, why can't we deal with, uh, you know, we'll just overlook it. He can't. He can't overlook it. Right. He needs it needs to be dealt with. And so really we should take that gospel out um, and should be more alive to us is that the Lord is going to deal with evil one day and that those who are not on his side are going to be swept aside. and He's going to deal with them once and for all. And so just a little thoughts from our from our chapter here of of Second Kings nine and ten. And so let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time that we have to come into your, uh, to look into your word. We just pray that we would um, be students of your word in all passages, Lord, and that your, your Bible has been constructed in such a way that it's all um, connected and that it comes from the mind of God. We just pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding as we look in. But, Lord, we just pray that we would be students of your word, those who know you. And, Lord, I just pray for any hearts here, Lord. I'm sure... 
there's someone in his heart that's not right with you, we just pray, Lord, that they would get right, Lord, that they would cry out to you in salvation and by faith receive your Son as Savior. And so we just ask all these things, bring us home safely. In Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen.